Welcome to the Beer Before Glory podcast. I'm your host, Justin Crosley. And I'm Matt Brennelson. And today we're talking hazy IPA. Uh, probably almost everybody's favorite style, at least for the last couple years. It certainly we had depends to go on there. We had to go yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two episodes into our Beer Before Glory podcast, and we, we went right for the Right for the good stuff with hazy IPA. Uh, and so joining us today, uh, Matt and I found two of uh, not only our favorite brewers um, currently, but two of the best uh, at, at making hazy beers uh, in, in our opinions. Um, and that's uh, JC Hill from Alvarado Street. Uh, welcome, JC. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Of course. And Neil Fisher from uh, Weldworks, which is out in uh, Colorado. Greeley, right? Neil? Greeley, Colorado, Northern Colorado. Thanks so much Thanks. for having me too. Yeah. Great. Um, uh, hazy brewers, great brewers in general. Um, and I've gotten to taste quite a lot of the beers from each of you. I know Matt has too. And um, brewers that typically share a little more information than the average uh, East coast hazy producer. <laughs> yes. Matt and I talk about that a lot where, you know, not every guest is that forthcoming. And, and our idea behind this podcast was to really talk about the, the details. So um, that's what we want to do today. But we're going to cover a little bit about the style in general. Um, but first, uh, just so our audience knows, why don't we just get a little bit of background? Um, Neil, how did you get into brewing? Were you a home brewer? I was. Started in my garage, uh, probably... Uh, shortly after moving to Colorado in 2008, so 2009 or so, started brewing in the garage. And then a few years later, had some homebrew uh, competition success. And uh, one of the kind of buddies that was brewing with me at the time, my partner now, Colin Jones, um, kind of said, hey, if we had some success at a bigger competition, maybe we should open a brewery. And here we are almost uh, six and a half years later, six years later, and um, kind of been a wild ride, but certainly uh didn't set out to make IPA or anything, but that kind of um, was fun to navigate as we grew and changed and evolved. Man, you hit the ground running like a lot of homebrew. There's a lot of homebrewers turn pro, but you guys like just really started uh, getting accolades very soon, making great beer right out of the gate. So I, I do not. I'm sure it's been a whirlwind because you guys just really hit the ground fast. I remember coming out for one of the early, we were just talking about it, one of the early retreats for craft beer and brewing. And I think this was before you started your brewery and you showed up and, and Jamie, the crew there. I mean, there was some foreshadowing. I think those guys knew you had the chops and, uh, you know, invited you in. And I remember tasting those beers and, yeah, you did hit the, the ground running for sure. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. That's, that's a huge compliment. We had, you know, I think that was kind of just from day one, that was kind of our focus. It was like, you know, there's so many great breweries in Colorado. There's not really room to, to not come out with something and not just, you know, a single product, but everything you do has to be, you know, up to those standards. So that was kind of our MO to start. And then we just figured out which styles resonated with our, our customers and what we loved and, you know, started carving a niche in, in the New England IPA for a little while. And, and that's kind of, I think, been something that really helped us grow a lot, but certainly not the only thing we're passionate about. Um, but yeah, we, we've been really fortunate. I, it's it's hard to imagine, you know, even that first, I think it was 2015 was that first GABF uh, medal. And just, you know, I, I think, you know, when you open a brewery, even as a home brewer, you always want to open a brewery, you want to do all those things, but hitting those milestones quickly and then still finding more of them was it's crazy. I, I'm, I'm worried about the time when I, 
you know, when we don't have anything else to work for and as math proven, <laughs> we just keep winning more medals. So we, <laughs> there's always more medals to win as, as Matt's right. proven. So, uh, yeah, I believe behind Matt is like a bucket of metals. He just has like a yeah. jar of metals somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't, you can't wear them all at once. If you're, long, if you're around long enough, you end up with a jar of metals. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, how about you, JC, uh, out here in California, at your brewery, and just give us a little bit of, of your history. Before Alvarado, were you a pro or a home brewer also? Yeah, Humber as well. Like Neil, uh, started in the garage, uh, San Diego, where I was living at the time, uh, 2000, uh, 2009, 2010, started home brewing. Um, I opened up a, uh, a restaurant in 2009. It was kind of like a fast casual rotisserie sandwich shop uh, with one of my good friends uh, that I went to college with, uh, which in our second location that we opened in 2011 became uh, a brewery called Amplified Aleworks. And it was brewing on a little three barrel kit. It was basically like a glorified homebrew setup. I used to go to a homebrew mart there in San Diego and go, you know, talk to the ballast guys and, and actually like use their, they had a commercial mill. So I would just go in there with like, you know, six bags of two row and use their mill and then go drink their beers. And then, uh, yeah, it was, it was a small brewery in the back of a kitchen. It was a great way to kind of cut my teeth uh, and learn, you know, a lot about the process. Uh, and then in 2014, I had the opportunity to come up to Monterey and uh, open Alvarado Street Brewery with my dad. Uh, downtown Monterey, we started with like a 10 barrel, uh, you know, brew kit with a restaurant. Um, we opened our production brewery a couple of years later, 2016. And uh, that was to kind of augment, uh, you know, put more beer on tap at our pub. Uh, and then I started driving kegs up to Santa Cruz in the back of my truck. And, you know, we ordered more tanks and started canning and, you know, 2016 and it sort of took off. And, uh, I guess here we are today. Excellent. Uh, you also have, have done very well. And I think <laughs> I make fun of you a lot on this, on, on all of the podcast, JC. Oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> And, and to me, <laughs> it's more you. make it's more, <laughs> but to me, it's more making fun of myself that I'm just like not cool enough anymore. I don't get it. And that you get it. And you've to me when I but we are not I, cool, though, by any <laughs> you're cool at not being cool, though. And yeah, okay, I'll take that. like you've carved out your niche as we don't have a niche like you do everything and stuff that even shouldn't be done. But people love it. I'm like, why did he do that? Why is JC doing this? I agree. Oh, love I agree. <laughs> well, I one, of, one of the moments I remember it. well was uh, when you showed up at the Invitational with that jet ski converted into a draft box. I was like, man, <laughs> these guys got game. I never thought of that. <laughs> that was incredible. <laughs> way too much time on that. That was right. uh, a lot of fun. <laughs> well, and for here at the Hop Grenade, um, lots of people ask about lots of breweries, but there's only two breweries that get asked for every week. And I want to make sure we have it in. And that's uh, of course, Russian river, like every other bar on earth who carries Russian river or doesn't, they get asked every week if you have it. And it's Alvarado street. I get calls about you every week. Most people have learned what your delivery date and time is each week. So they stopped calling, but the others are like, yeah, when, when are you getting biggies, bodacious, blueberry <laughs> bullshit or whatever it's called, JC. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's great. People are still, you know, really, really into it. And it, they are, it's, it's tough to kind of keep up, you know, the excitement, but uh, luckily it's a fun 
profession and a fun job. And there's always, you know, ways we can make the liquid better. And there's also ways we can, you know, do things that are, you know, you know, like make blue Hawaiian seltzers and, you know, things that are abhorrent <laughs> and, and sort of a traditional view. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it's, I think it's, I've been having a lot of fun with it. And I, to me, it's fun to watch, uh, um, you know, customers come in and know your beers by name. Know you, some of them have so many random ingredients in, in terms of traditional beer and they know all about that stuff. And, uh, so it's actually, it, it's really fun. Um, but I do like to make fun of you cause I'm like, I don't know what he's making now. Fair, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> um, okay. Well, let's start talking hazy beer. Um, and I did, we do occasionally get juicy bits here, by the way, Neil, every now and then you guys send some beer this way and we carry that too. And people also um, go crazy for that. If we get juicy bits, like I kind of put it on the shelf. Sometimes we'll, we'll also get like a batch of a heady topper. And uh, those beers are gone before I can, like almost before I can put them on the shelf, you know? Um, so why don't we talk just a little bit about the origins of the style? So people, as everybody knows what we're talking about with, with a hazy IPA, uh, it's really probably the youngest style in terms of massive popularity anyway, um, to come out. And it you know, started in New England. It started out being called the New England IPA. Um, and of course, um, Hazy described in immediately like how it looks. Um, and it's evolved now. It's spread across the whole country like wildfire. And on our last episode, Matt, um, I, th I think we even talked about how there's kind of subcategories of Hazy now. Like some people are saying, West Coast hazy has is like kind of a new thing. Uh, seller maker, I think, uses that term sometimes, right? Um, so it's it's evolved into into different things, um, and then, and I also just want to point out that I think that to brewers anyway, and to savvy consumers, hazy IPA means more than what it looks like. It has a palate. It has a mouthfeel. It has a lot of other, you know, there's juicy, uh, hazy IPA. And so I want us to get into kind of all of that. And that's just sort of the background, um, unless I missed anything uh, that you guys know of about how we got here with hazy IPAs. So how about this? Neil, can you describe the characteristics of, you, of maybe the favorite hazy IPA that you make? What makes that a, a New England IPA or a hazy IPA to you? Yeah, I think when we were developing Juicy Bits, it was, you know, trying to get familiar with what that style was. Um, I think it, you know, obviously evolved from kind of Vermont roots to Massachusetts and kind of spread from there. Um, it kind of went through iterations, but what really appealed to us back in, you know, 2015, when we really started diving into it more, and I think we probably tried close to, you know, 75 different, you know, hazy or New England IPAs. And that's, you know, end of 2015 before we started working on Juicy Bits. And it was it was clear we gravitated towards what was kind of the softer bitterness, what was kind of underlying on, on everything. Um, and I think the mouthfeel component's a huge part too. So it's balancing, even, even if it has a little bit more assertive bitterness, it's balancing it with a little bit more full, full body, a little bit more kind of pronounced mouthfeel, not necessarily an emphasis on malt, but maybe, you know, not necessarily just trying to shove it in the corner and make the hops, the sole focus. Okay. Um, and we, you know, we started to figure out what that looked like. And, um, but I think those, those two things in particular, like the kind of a, a more restrained and a little bit, um, you know, less emphasis on bitterness, more on hop flavor and aroma was kind of what I always saw. And then just this really kind of unique mouthfeel. Um, and that those are the two, I think, characteristics that really struck us as is pretty different from what was in the market for IPA in general, especially here in Colorado, we had 
really great producers. And those, you know, those examples we tried really stood out as they were still IPA, um, still tons of hops, if not higher hop rates, but mm. they drank a very, you know, almost appealed to a wider audience because of those two factors. Okay. And did you, I wanted to ask about the yeast out of the gates because, you know, I think I picked this up from JC more than anyone when I was trying to get my head wrapped around the style. Did you start with an alternative yeast or did you try to employ your house yeast or whatever yeast you were most comfortable with your West coast IPA yeast? We, we knew we wanted to change the yeast. That was the first, I think, kind of qualifier when we were designing the recipes. So we tried a lot of different ones and it was, <clears throat> I think, a really strong emphasis on kind of British and English yeast in particular, which is where we landed on, on London Ale 3. Um, but I think we knew we wanted a little bit less attenuation. Um, not We didn't want sweet. We didn't want cloying. We didn't want to finish it. You know, we still wanted it to attenuate, but we wanted to kind of slow down and, and kind of temper the attenuation. And we also really wanted expressive. I think that we already talked about it earlier, earlier but expressive yeast, I think, is, a, is an important factor as well, especially when you're complementing it with kind of complex fruity varietals of hops that, um, you know, we're, we're getting a lot of our fruit character from our yeast and our fermentations in Juicy Bits and, and some of our other IPAs. So that was a big factor for us, too. So we ran the gamut of, um, you know, the Conan strains and several different uh, British strains, um, dry English and, 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 and quite a few. And I think for us, London Ale 3 was that kind of perfect balance of um, kind of ester expression with, uh, you know, moderate attenuation um, and, and could still, you know, we could still get it to turn quick, quickly enough where we were attenuating. It, we had a few yeast that just took way too long to attenuate. And then we started to, you know, extend those brew lengths and just wasn't one, it wasn't sustainable. And two, we just couldn't maintain the, the hot freshness that we really liked about IPA. And so you start adding three to four days to, to fermentations or even two and at the time. And it's, you know, we, that one really struck the balance for all of the, what we wanted in the check boxes for, all those factors, but it wasn't, um, I don't think we ever even tried a trial batch with, with our kind of American uh, yeast. So it's, it's really fun to see people experiment with totally. I've, I've heard a, a lot of fun beers with Hefeweizen strains, which would, we do use a uh, Hef strain. So we should try that at some point as well. We just kind of landed in the British realm and never got out of that. <laughs> Matt, didn't you say that once like, Oh yeah, we're just making half of now. We're just calling that or something to, to that effect. I mean, is there a reason that brewers didn't all just start using a half of yeast to do this? I mean, my, my opinion on that is the phenolics. So, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of those top fermenting yeasts from Europe specifically half of yeast produce a lot of phenolics. And um, I think that's something that's, difficult to work with the rest of this. So you're really looking for this kind of more ester forward yeast. Um, and yeah, if you could chop the phenolic gene out of the hefeweizen and yeast and just allow it to make isoamyl acetate and that banana aroma, that probably would work. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so I'm so curious because, you know, JC, I think when I started getting into these beers, I was pinging you on yeast strains. So I was trying to wrap my head around that. And, you know, you had already experimented with a lot of things and mixed strains and stuff like that. So I'm kind of curious on what the journey has been for you with yeast. I know you've experimented with a lot of things. Yeah, for sure. I think for us, it was really, um, you know, built on, you know, aroma. And then from there, we could adjust the grist, uh, adjust our mashing technique 
um, to kind of fall into that uh, modern, I guess, hazy IPA profile. Uh, but in the early days with yeast, it was really, um, you know, inspired by a trip, you know, to the East Coast and, and having, you know, Heady Topper Fresh and, um, you know, going to Hill Farmstead, drinking those beers, um, you know, and experimenting with the Conan strain. And that one was was really amazing. And we used that for, you know, at our pub for a number of years, I want to say. The original Contains No Juice was, was and uh, Vengeful Barbarians, another one of our more um, popular IPAs. Those were um, originally Conan-based uh, hazy IPAs, but we kind of battled with consistency between uh, you know generation to generation, and, and harvesting yeast for us is something you know we've, we've always done, and um, kind of just an important part of, of the way we you know run uh, in our cellar. So we eventually had to move away from Conan, um, but throughout that we were experimenting a little bit with London Three. We weren't actually super thrilled on London Three at first. I thought it was just like a little more subtle than Conan in terms of ester production. Um, didn't kick out as much fruit, but um, you know clearly we had to kind of experiment with that more, and that came later with London Three. But we got into this Sactois thing, and Matt, I'm sure you you remember. You know, we were, we were talking about a lot about that. That was, you know, 2017 and, and 2018. And, and that was a really cool yeast and through just all kinds of crazy, uh, you know, passion fruit and mango and just this huge, you know, fruit bowl of aroma that seemed to do some type of biotransformation and almost got like crazier as it aged a little bit. Um, but there was a lot of negative effects with uh, the, the Sactois strain as well. It, it, you know, for one, it hyper attenuated. So it got really, really dry, which is kind of the opposite of what you want to do with these beers. You want to leave, you know, quite a bit of residual sugar behind to kind of, you know, balance um, that heavy hop load to, to get the aroma that you're going for. Uh, and also it just was a real difficult yeast to, to keep around in the cellar. Um, so eventually out of necessity, I think we landed on London 3 and then through, you know, a lot of experimentation with temperature and, and pitch rate, really, I think, um, you know, we, we hold back when, when we pitch uh, with London 3 to kind of drive those yeast esters and really get as much out of it as possible. So, you know, figuring that out was, you know, a couple of years and we're, we're- Can I, can I interject right there? I just want to yeah, clarify. Absolutely. Well, Sorry. I'm just kind of, now you're bringing me back to like my, my old days here at the Brewing Network where I was just learning a ton from you guys. So you're, you're holding back a little on your yeast pitch. And if I remember right, that'll just, it stresses out the yeast, like just enough that they start putting out these flavors that you're looking for. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And not like grossly under pitching, you know, yeast, I think, you know, on our, on our standard, you know, hazy IPA, I think we shoot for 750,000 um, cells per milliliter per degree Play-Doh. And that's kind of a happy medium up until about, you know, 17, 18 Play-Doh. And then we want to get it up to, you know, just shy of one. And, and that's worked well for us, but it's, it's also taken a while to kind of figure that out. And there's, you know, there's little intricacies, you know, involved with that as well in mm -hmm. terms of keeping it viable and keeping it around and, you know, when the yeast will tend to flock out, you got to know when to kind of start with a new pitch. So, you know, it's all just about learning and figuring out what works, but I think, you know, what Neil was saying about, you know, the construction of these, of these beers and what you're going for. Um, you know, I think London's a really versatile strain that, that works well. Okay. It's, it's interesting, too, because before the haze craze, West Coast IPAs, from a yeast perspective, went exactly the opposite of what you guys are describing. 
right? The cleanest yeast you could find is what people were going for. You know, Cal Ale, super popular. There's some others being used, of course. Um, not a lot of esters, really just relying on flavors coming out of the hops when it come to the, came to like the florality of, of the beer. And so I think when people simplify hazy beer as like, oh yeah, it's just hazy. It's a hazy, you know, it's hazy. It's an IPA that's hazy. It's such an understatement because you've really done an opposite type of fermentation than you, than you, so many brewers had perfected. Like the, that West Coast IPA, my, you know, one of my favorite styles still, y'all got so good at it. And then, oh, hey, let's just flip that upside down and, and, and not do that. <laughs> let's leave some sugar behind. Let's have all these esters. And how do we do that? And I'm guessing it was a challenge. Like you just said, I, it kind of took a couple of years even before learning some of these things. You know, I was going to throw in there and it was a little bit of a different twist for, for me in my journey because I've always worked with British ale strains that were pretty big ester producers. So, you know, when everyone talked about, oh, you want, you know, you want to find, a, you know, fruit forward yeast, you want to find a yeast that's doing all this biotransformation and all of that. And we did some GC profiling of what would happen when we fermented with this London 3 versus, you know, the other British strain that we use. And we were finding our British strain was actually producing more ester and more fruity notes and more iso meal but it won't throw a haze. It just drops right. Oh. And, and so, you know, we were kind of, we were kind of coming at it from a couple of different angles. We we're like, man, if we could get our yeast to throw that kind of a haze, we probably could produce it with our house strain, but felt like, and, and now that I've gotten to know London three and, and derivatives of that yeast better, now I get it, you know, how to manipulate a little bit more to produce a little bit more of what I call more of a juicy fruity character than we could ever have done with that initial yeast. But boy, it took me a while to wrap my head around it. Yeah, and that's right, JC, because then you threw that like Sactois curveball <laughs> at me and I'm like, I'm going to have to bring a diastaticus yeast into my brewery to make these. Beers. I hope I didn't sabotage you with that. Yeah, uh. I was like, what? <laughs> and then there was like mixed culture talk and all this. I'm like, man, this is getting tough. <laughs> so Matt, I'm drinking, I got sent your uh, Elena, Elena? How yeah. How guys pronounce it? Uh, what yeast is in this? Is this, is this uh, London? Correct. London 3. It is. Okay. Yeah. Um, same yeast that we make, uh, Mind Haze and, and Double Mind that one. It's hazy. with. And, and, and that's a beer that. that was formulated by Sam Tierney down at the Propagator. And that one's interesting in that it's, it's actually just uh, pale ale malt and about 30% malted oats uh, fermented with London 3. And then it's all New Zealand hopped with uh, Nelson and Rawaka. And it just turned out fabulous, man. And um yeah. Sam goes back and forth in that brewery about whether to fine or not to fine, basically to drop yeast or not. I don't believe that beer that you just held up uh, saw any fining. And, you know, not to go too down, too deep down the rabbit hole of beer geekery, but it was, we like to drop the yeast out of them and we can still get a pretty nice hazy beer. And that's just kind of our program. You know, we'll centrifuge here when we can. Uh, and we are having some difficulties with foam, uh, in some of our find beers we backed off a little bit more recently but mm. yeah that's a sam creation and then we're going to do a collaboration later this week where we go 50 percent with malted oats and tail just real simple recipes playing around with that ratio uh in the same yeast strain okay i want to go i want to come back to oats and and different grain bill ingredients because i think that goes back to what neil was saying about how the the mouthfeel of of this style is so important but before we leave just like yeast strains in particular jc i think the most recent 
contains no juice I got from you here, which would be like your seventh anniversary contains no juice. You developed a yeast with a local yeast maker to kind of get what you wanted out of it. Didn't you? Didn't that have a very unique yeast in it? Yeah. I don't think we were the ones that developed it. I think um, they were already, the guys at Berkeley yeast were already, um, you know, experimenting with how to, and and we're going to go down the rabbit hole here, but um, how to accentuate uh, thiols in the finished product through fermentation. Some thiols are just, you know, uh, very small uh, sulfuric compounds that are measured in the parts per trillion that, um, they have, you know, little acronyms. There's 3MH and 3MHA and 4MMP. And, you know, those are basically the responsible for the flavor in a lot of fruit and wine and, and even in beer. And some hops have them naturally. And we're talking like grapefruit, uh, passion fruit, guava, you know, really kind of uh, accurate descriptors for what I think a lot of brewers are going for with hazy IPA. So we asked them to make um, basically a London 3 version of that. Uh, strain that they've been working on, I believe was just like a neutral American ale strain. And uh, we had been working on that uh, in our uh, little five barrel brewery here in Carmel, kind of dialing in dry hop rate um, and just basically seeing how it would work. And after about three or four trials, we we just went for it with contains no juice. And um, it's pretty crazy result. It's uh, it, if you've had like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc wine before, it's without any hops, and you just go through a normal fermentation, it smells just like it. It's passion wow. and gooseberry and, and lychee, and it's just crazy. So it's definitely a unique canvas to then like, you know, rip a bunch of hops on top of and, and basically create this like flavor bomb, so on to speak. But it's very new to us. And, you know, we've only done, that was the first uh, production batch that we'd done with it. And it's something we're, we're playing with. It's really exciting. Excellent. GMO. It's GMO, yeah. It's genetically modified yeast, but it's I don't think <laughs> I don't think it has the uh, the stigma associated with GMO. But yeah, it is a, a yeast that is uh, genetically altered to um, biotransform thiols that are bound in in grain mostly, um, but also in hops and, and other precursors, and that takes bound thiols and makes them free and, and basically uh, through in, an enzymatic process, you know, translates to aroma and flavor. Awesome. I mean, wasn't all yeast like at some point in its career uh, genetically modified to, to turn into brewer's yeast. So I don't, I think that's nothing new. Don't worry folks. It's nothing new. You've been drinking this shit for a long time. You're going to be fine. <laughs> it's all mutants. It is all mutants. It's all, it's all mutants. Yeah. Domest- domesticated mutants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right. And then since we're uh, uh, still on, on yeast, I, I want to go back to something that Matt said. You've all talked about it and that's yeast flocculation and where you want it to do that and, and what impact that has on hazy beer. So maybe could we start with a, with a clarification? And I, I kind of get different answers about this all the time. You know, there are people who think that the haze, you know, 100% of the haze in a hazy beer is yeast. And there are people that think all the haze in a hazy beer is hop material. And then I hear crazy things from Matt and others who say, oh, no, we sometimes centrifuge our hazy beer. And then I'm going, well, how is there anything in that beer if you centrifuge it? So can you guys help me understand what makes a hazy beer hazy and how yeast and I guess hops too affect that? Neil, you want to start? 
Yeah, I think the haze has been our biggest kind of challenge with how to make it stable. Uh, we kind of battled that stigma at first because we didn't want to make beer just you know to be turbid. We that was never our intention. We wanted to make an IPA that presented with all these characteristics, and a byproduct was that was mostly hazy. But that was never the goal. That was never the intent. But at the same time, we did see that obviously, for one, the consumer has different. You know, there's an aesthetic quality to the beer that has now just become synonymous with juice. So the higher the turbidity sometimes, even if it's not as juicy or even as drinkable, it markets really well. It Instagrams really well. Um, so those are some like tangible actual challenges that we never wanted those to be considerations on the production side, but we did see that there were some changes in even mouthfeel. If we could, if a beer dropped extremely bright, we would see a little bit, even without any change in, you know, attenuation is the same. So, you know, we kind of liken that to the protein or the, you know, and and we kind of, I think a lot of folks were starting to look at polyphenol and and protein binding and and how that affects haze stability and and not yeast. I think that was the, I think, I think that was really the the misconception for a, a very long time was that, you know, you just basically, you package green beer and you have hazy IPA, you know, you package it a week normal or earlier than normal and you don't crash it. You just, you know, you package it out of the fermenter at 60 degrees and now you've got hazy IPA. And I think that was, you know, a lot of people liking that to yeast and that not to say that people weren't rushing beer to package to accomplish this aesthetic goal, but our best batches are, you know, ones that we have almost no yeast left and we do centrifuge. Uh, We commissioned our centrifuge uh, last year and we're, you know, we're targeting, you know, NTUs in the, the range of close to 1200, sometimes even 1500, which is crazy to run a centrifuge and, and still end up with a beer that hazy, that turbid. Um, but our goal is not to, you know, we're trying to drop yeast. We're trying to drop, you know, vegetal hop matter. We're trying to make the beer as, um, you know, as, as ready to, to, to enjoy as soon as we package it rather than these longer conditioning times we had before this. So we were, you know, we were doing bright conditioning for a week or longer on some of our really excessively dry hop beers, and they would still have this really substantial hop burn for a very long time. So the centrifuge for us wasn't really to change the turbidity at all or the haze. It was to really focus on quality and freshness and be able to, to get the beer to where we, you know, we, we have our extra, extra, you know, juicy bits is, is the total hop load is close to, you know, 14 pounds per barrel. And it's just an excessively ridiculous beer. And, but the byproduct was that we had to condition it forever to make it even drinkable because there's so much dry hop and hop burn. The centrifuge has really helped us, especially on those really excessively dry hop beers, just to make, you know, all the, the hop character pop without the associated kind of vegetal burn and all that. So how the hell do you kids afford to do that? Yeah. Well, well the centrifuge yeah. makes it a little more affordable. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. $20. That's crazy time. 14 I know we just did triple. We did an extra, extra, extra for our sixth anniversary back a few months ago. And that one was the most we've done. And it was, you know, it was really fun to do. I don't know if we'll ever do it again, just because, losses when you start to package about half the beer you put in the you know you knocked out of the the kettle in the whirlpool it's like well maybe we're maybe we hit that threshold but um but yeah the scenery does help us recover a lot of that make some happy hop farmers out there i think that jc and neil are too young for this matt like in their brewing careers but matt you remember the hop crisis remember when you know they were the hop crisis 
Let right? me tell you about the half. No, See, and I feel like like brewers like you and me, have, we're like people who survived the Great Depression, like 25 cents for milk. Are you insane? And so when when Neil says something like 14 barrels, we're like, this person is crazy. We would never. That's downright scandalous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, hop crisis. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> now the hop crisis is the consumers. They don't have enough of it in their mouths. Um, so no, okay. I, I'm, I'm glad, Neil, that you, you brought that up because, you know, for us, the challenge was producing a beer that would have the kind of shelf life that our other uh, beers have. You know, the challenge was 120 days of shelf stability and, and when we first got into this, all we kept hearing from everybody we were talking to is like, Ooh, you know, these beers are beautiful, fresh and young, but they really tend to fall apart pretty quickly. And that's what kind of kept me up at night. So, you know, we deployed the centrifuge thinking that, you know, yeah, the hot burn was part of it, but I think more specifically, I was focused on removing yeast, thinking that autolyzed yeast and, you know, whatever would happen to that yeast once we package, especially in such a hop driven solution would just shorten our shelf life. And, um, but I think it's interesting. You're talking about the hot burn as well. I think it, it does work to, to clean a little bit of that up, especially when you start getting, you know, in this brewery, it's like, when we're north of three or four pounds per barrel, not 14 pounds per barrel, but you know, in relative a few times a year. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, freshness aside, and you know, all IPAs, hazies in, included, you know, should, should be drank soon. And, and you're talking about shelf stability, but theoretically, if I log, you know, if I bought juicy bits and I lagered it in my fridge long enough right there in that can, would it drop clear? We've done since we, Commission the centrifuge, we've done some extended trials at cold and, and it really maintains a very uniform haze stability. And I think that wow. is pointing to what Matt Matt alluded to is the yeast. That final, like just dropping the last bit of that yeast, it's gonna the yeast is gonna drop. That's the inevitable part. So whatever's left sure. in the package will eventually flock and, and fall out. What I think is happening, and you know, we haven't done enough data or or trials to prove this, but I think as that yeast, whatever's residual in the can at package, whatever's left at flux, you know, whether it's 30 or 60 days in your fridge, you forgot about it, it's gonna drop protein and 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 other, you know, and polyphenols, all the other other components of that haze, some of that's gonna drop as well. So we found the the lower our cell counts are in package, um, you know, post-centrifuge, the lower the cell count, the less yeast we have left. The, the better haze stability we see. So I see. Wow. I think that's, you know, that's another benefit to like, like Matt said, just, I don't think any of us, there's really not a ton of benefit for yeast. Now, obviously, you know, it's, it's, a, it's some of it is tolerable at, at lower thresholds. It's not going to turn the beer into dust in 30 days, but you know, anything that's, anything that's exceeding, you know, a few, even thousand cells per mil is going to, I think we're going to see, especially in package, that beer will drop right. It'll change, you know, flavor wise. It won't hold up as well. So I think even 90 day juicy bits in your, in your fridge kept cold will probably look very similar to the same haze that you poured at that package. Wow. Okay. JC, same kind of line of questioning for you. Are you guys using a centrifuge? Are you doing anything like that with your hazies? Oh yeah. We're on uh, team centrifuge and just to kind of piggyback on what, you know, Neil was saying, like we basically found that, um, if you don't pull a lot of your yeast out, it's going to bind to those polyphenols and even your hop compounds 
Um, like if you even like taste yeast off a tank that's been dry hopped, I mean, it's super, super bitter. Mm. So for us, uh, we kind of changed the way we dry hop. We actually will soft crash our tanks um, to a temperature uh, to try and get as much yeast out of the tank as possible before we dry hop. And then absolutely, we, we run it through a centrifuge to, to pull all that yeast out because that will, um, if we don't you know bring that out, it, it will drop bright in the can and pull everything else along with it down. Uh, and then it's just, you're kind of not really having a hazy IPA at that point. So that was through a lot of trial and error. And, and the centrifuge is just like a part of your recipe. Uh, okay. It, and I think it can actually improve the, the quality of the beer and, and make it a lot smoother by removing that harsh, stringent, you know, kind of hot burn uh, that's associated with these higher levels. Um, but you can pull too much haze out. And, you know, we've kind of struggled a little bit as we've commissioned ours over the last uh, year and a half. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, today's consumer likes to, you know, judge a book by its cover. And, um, you know, if it's not really hazy, it's, it's going to be, you know, kind of automatically <laughs> sort of set aside or, 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 you know, preemptively judged. I hate to say it, but it, it's a little bit yeah. true. Um, so, you know, like, like Neil said, you know, we're shooting for, for certain EBC, uh, NTU targets on our centrifuge, um, which are, can be difficult. And, and it really comes down to recipe formulation and, and really getting as much of the yeast out as, as possible, actually, before it really, uh, gets run through the centrifuge. I mean, as long as we're on that subject, I mean, in this brewery, we don't have a lot of levers to pull in that regard. So in general, when we're running a hazy beer, we're basically running, you know, fast as we can, lowest bowl speed possible. And, you know, we do want to see yeast removal, but we want to see maximum haze otherwise. Is that a similar strategy for you guys? Definitely. Yeah. We're not as concerned about the actual turbidity. We're really just concerned about yeast. So whatever. And it obviously, you know, we, we have the turbidity both in, in, in and out, but it'd be great to measure cell counts in, in those as well. I think that would for, for us be a better, you know, we want to ma maintain some haze, but it's, it's not the target it's dropping yeast and, and beyond that, anything else that drops when you're dropping that much yeast, I think is, is not desirable. It's nothing you want to keep around. It's our bigger kind of vegetal hop care, you know, all those things that add, mostly just off flavors, nothing that's positive. Okay. So I have to go back to something JC said, because, you know, maybe a little contrary to what some people think, you know, we talked about biotransformation that obviously involves having yeast, active yeast uh, in the presence of hops, but you were talking about a soft crash to remove hop, uh, yeast before you add the hops. Is there some combination or is there this program of, of some addition early on to get some biotransformation positives and then more later on after the yeast has been removed? And is that also, I'm going to ask, uh, some type of a strategy and avoiding hop creep? Yeah, well, definitely the hop creep for sure. That's one way we've been able to get around it is short, uh, I guess we'll start with that, but short um, contact time and a cooler temperature. Uh, and, um, just recirculating the hops to get as much saturation as possible is, is, you know, it, it was born out of minimizing hop creep, that strategy, but then we kind of found that we were actually getting a lot of yeast out and getting a higher, um, turbidity without a lot of yeast through the centrifuge. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of it has to do with like hop um, variety too. Cause some of these hops are just have way more uh, polyphenols than, you know, other hops. And, you know, like, for example, like we've been messing around with uh, Waimea, 2020 Waimea from Freestyle. And, you know, we, we did like a pound per barrel in it. And the thing looks just like crazy. It looks like a bomb went off. It's like unreal. And so I think that's like something that's been fun to learn. And, and you know, obviously every hop variety is completely different in terms of, you know, it's aromatic and flavor potential. But it's just kind of interesting how some hops can contribute more haze than, than others. It's been has been interesting. Hmm. Would you say some hops turn your beer into a hop grenade, JC? Uh, no, not not our beer because we're getting that yeast out. So we're uh, good. Because I would sue you in a second if you said that your beers were hop grenades. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All oh, right. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> um, okay. I want to relate this discussion about the the results you're getting from yeast, uh, how haze works. A lot of these these uh, comments you're making about. Um, that hop bite, yeast bite, anything left. I want to relate it back to the consumer a little bit and how it has to do with why hazy IPAs have become so popular and why, why we love them so much. And, and if we were to tie everything y'all just said together about how you're doing it, I think consumers would really understand why and why that beer tastes the way it does. And I thought maybe I'd start with just kind of anecdotally, um, I think that Hazy IPA has turned on a lot of new beer drinkers who didn't like beer before. And they didn't like beer because they didn't like bitterness. Um, and even if they drank beer, they would never have touched an IPA. They had one IPA a long time ago and it was too bitter and they never went back until somebody handed them a Hazy IPA. And that soft bitterness and the mouthfeel that we still need to talk about too, I think really opened up a whole new palette for people. Um, so when you guys are discussing the science of this fermentation, it's all can be very complex on your side, but on my side, on, on, the, on, the, on your consumer side, um, what's wonderful about it is that it just provides this very drinkable beer that still tastes like beer without all that bitterness. And now I can be a hophead and still not love bitterness, right? Or at least firm bitterness. So that that's kind of one of my takes on how this style became so popular. Um, you know, the other is just straight up showcasing yeast, right? Like people just love, uh, sorry, showcasing hops. Cause people just love hop varieties. Now they know them by name. We talked about this on the last podcast, like, you know, hop varieties are famous now, you know, you, Oh, mosaic. I love mosaic. I'm a big fan. You know, it's like such a weird <laughs> mosaic. It's like a band. Um, <laughs> so, um, but all of those things, like I said, combine to make the style what it is. Um, and so maybe we can talk about, let's talk about mouthfeel a little bit. Um, and we've talked a little bit about how yeast, I think, contributes to that. We've mentioned how you're pulling yeast out because it's not something we want. That could disrupt your mouthfeel, uh, I think, by adding some bitterness. Um, what else are you doing to make that kind of pillowy, soft bed for the 14 pounds per barrel of hops that are that are going in and uh, jc why don't, why don't we start with you this time what do you tell me about some of your malt bills or what you're doing it doesn't just have to be malt you're doing to make that that background no it totally has to do um you know with malt is definitely one of the parts uh so we will well actually so our london three yeast is, is not the most attenuative of yeast so you know I, on a higher gravity, like a double IPA, we, we can still mash, you know, relatively low and, and get it not to dry out uh, beyond a certain spec. So I think leaving a lot of residual um, sugar behind is part of it. But in terms of like the grist, 
you know, it's kind of, I think most brewers will answer that it's, you know, a combination of, of high protein uh, adjuncts, oats, wheat, okay. uh, flaked barley for some. We use um, a hard red wheat from Oregon that we, um, we, we have it uh, custom kiln for us. So it's uh, like, keep that color light. But the protein content is in excess of uh, 16%, around 16%, which um, is just a great base for, for hot polyphenols to bind to, to create the stable haze. But uh, it also lends a really nice, you know, rich mouthfeel. Um, and can you give me a comparison just so I can understand if, if that wheat for you is, is like 16% protein, what would like a normal, what would an American two row be? Like, you know, your clear IPA. Malt. Probably like a, like eleven percent. I don't know. Matt would probably know. Okay, pretty significant. Yeah, I mean, you're talking yeah. 10, 11 percent is considered mm-hmm. like good brewing standard malt. Um, okay, and, and typically lower is is better by at least you know Pilsner brewing standards and things like that. I mean, Got it. you you can get into the weeds regarding foam positive and non foam positive proteins, and you can also get you know, even deeper in the weeds on what provides fan or free amino nitrogen for the yeast. But at the end of the day, typically brewers have shied away from high protein malts. Um, And what's interesting is my time in Belgium, I learned that brewers are going back, leaning back towards higher protein malts because it's so good for foam, even when you're making clear Mm. beers. Okay. So I think you're onto something there. And and I just wanted to ask, is, is that just a toasted red wheat? It's not a malted wheat. Uh, it's, uh, it's a hard red wheat. I think it's a spring variety. It's through uh, Mecca grade when they're in, um, kind of the, the, near the Deschutes river there in uh, central Oregon. Um, we've been using their malt for, for a little while. It's a really great product. Oh, so it is, it is a malted wheat. It's not just it's a malted wheat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a malted wheat. It's not, it's not flaked or uh, gelatinized or anything like that. We actually, we love it. We actually use it, uh, in our West coast IPAs, like you said, Matt, just for foam, uh, at about 10% of the grist and it'll, it'll, it'll drop right. Um, Got it. but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great product. Uh, I think, you know, the water's big too, obviously, um, you know, for us, we, we use, uh, RO to start with and we add back, um, salts to get the desired outcome. And I, I think at this point I have like five versions of our, our hazy water bill and we're, we're always trying to learn more about that. It's, it's something that's, kind of hard to quantify sometimes, but in general, you know, we try and keep our chloride levels higher than our sulfate. Um, you know, we, we try and keep a, a good amount of calcium, uh, in the water. Uh, so, I mean, that, that part's a little more tricky, but it, it's something that definitely has, has an impact. Okay. See, I, and I hadn't thought about that, but I get, I've always talked about water on the show in terms of like hop expressiveness. Um, but I don't know that I've, I've talked about, you know, it contributing to mouthfeel, but I guess it's kind of the same thing. How it's going to interact with those hops is also going to contribute to your mouthfeel and yeast, everything. Okay. Is that something, uh, Matt, did you guys have to make some major water adjustments, uh, when you got into, to hazy beer too? Yeah. I mean, in, in general, we were already kind of following what everybody else has been preaching in terms of you know, beers that we want to have a softer mouthfeel. We use more, uh, yeah, calcium chloride to adjust calcium. And I've long been in the camp of less is more in terms of water and the amount of salts I use. So I tend to be a little lean and mean, and I do start with RO water. So, um, you know, back in my brewing school days, uh, you know, 
you know, all, all the teachers always preach like the softer and cleaner the water was, the better the beer was going to be. And we did a lot of experiments where we just brewed with RO and no salts and we're able to make some pretty mm. rad beers. So oh, wow. I tend to be pretty, yeah, minimal, like just enough calcium to get the job done on most of our beers. But yeah, I mean, long and the short of it is we use more calcium chloride and on the hazy beers, but yeah, I'm not the expert. I'm just using old man tricks on these beers, trying to keep up with these guys. <laughs> uh, old man, remember the, <laughs> it's just the hop we're crisis. You yeah, we're going to have to do it once a show, Matt, you and I are going to have to go, do you remember <laughs> just anything? Uh... <laughs> but Neil, um, I'm, I'm curious because I know you spent a lot of time thinking about those things too. How do you approach that? Both yeah. the malt side and the, the salt side of things. Yeah, water chemistry was was a big part of our kind of uh, research and just some trials and where we where we landed was almost three to one uh, now chloride to sulfate. Um, our sulfate we're trying to keep around uh, you know seventy to ninety, so under a hundred, um, and then we're pushing chloride close to two fifty, um, some you know a little bit higher. That's a, that's a, I'd say that's definitely on the higher end for chloride. Um, and for us, it was really just about that accentuation of mouthfeel. And we, we don't want, like I said, malt should never be the focus, but we do want to bring in some of that malt character as, as we get these really heavily drop dry hopped and, and hop beers. Um, so we kind of lean on, on a malt backbone at times to balance those beers out. So chloride was a big part of that. Um, the challenges we faced when we were building these really big kind of water adjustments were calcium in particular was getting too high. So we were triggering really early flock um, and it was flocking hard because our calcium was exceeding, you know, 150, 160 parts. And that's mainly a byproduct of using both calcium chloride and calcium sulfate for our, our salt addition. So we basically switched the uh, sulfates to magnesium sulfate. So Epsom. And that helped us keep that calcium in check. That was a really, you know, a few years, maybe two years into a year and a half, we made that switch and that helped us keep the, the calcium levels, you know, under 150, closer to 120 or just over hundred. And that really helped us with haze stability and consistency. Um, even harvests were improved um, for second gens and all that. So that was a small tip that we picked up that was, you know, we were always using way too much just calcium in general between the two salt additions and, and switching our sulfate from calcium sulfate over to magnesium sulfate. Obviously you don't want too much magnesium, so I wouldn't switch both, but, but even just the small amount of sulfate we were trying to drive um, in that 75 part uh, range was, was, you know, still well under the threshold where we worry about, um, you know, <laughs> anyone getting the shits from too much, too much magnesium, <laughs> which I think is always like, it's always the, the big fear. Everyone's like, test your water, make sure you don't have too much magnesium. It's like, what happens? Like, it's just, it's, I'll tell you, it's an easy that. test. Yeah, <laughs> for just... sure. So, no, but I think you nailed it. I mean, I think most of our water chemistry decisions were more about yeast health. Um, obviously we're tasting the beer and there's a certain mouthfeel and there's an effect, but we're also really trying to, you know, do what we need to do for the yeast. And, and most of our calcium, yeah, it was all about yeast health, yeast population, all the things you just nailed it. That's yeah. Good, good advice. It was something we never really even considered. We, you know, obviously want enough calcium for yeast health, but too much can even be adverse. And that's something we didn't, you know, anecdotally, we started to see and I'm just made those substitutions. But I mean, as well, far as. Oh, I was just going to say, and then counterintuitive to all of that is like when you get too low in calcium, yeast tends to produce oxalate downstream and you have gushers and other issues. And, you know, a lot of, maybe a lot of brewers 
haven't experienced that or haven't gotten there. But, you know, if you ever see those little shiny diamonds when you're counting yeast on your hemocytometer, you know, you probably need to go back to the calcium calculator and make sure you're where you need to be. Yeah. And even, you know, any generational changes obviously get exacerbated as you keep going down the, you know, down to third or fourth generations if you're pushing these yeast that far. So we just started to see those kind of impacts that by the time we get to the second, especially with too much calcium, we would see really, really poor second gen um, harvest. So, um, but for malt, our, our base was, you know, has always really been a 50, 50 split for base malts between both Pilsner and our pale malt. And that was just to give us, we still wanted, it was hard to get the kind of, yeah, the, the baseline malt character we wanted from just one of those two is either too light or too dark. And, and color was such an important part, especially as you're making turbid beer, those kinds of color decisions, you know, in a normal beer would never even be a consideration, but you get too dark and you start to, you know, see turbidity rise and, and it's not appealing anymore. You get too light and the same thing happens. So you're trying to, you know, like I said, we're never going to make Instagram uh, decisions on production, but there's some tangible benefits too, I think, with just lightening some of our base malts. So that led us to, okay, what's our protein? You know, how do we build up that protein, the high protein malt base? And we've kind of really loved a mix of both oats and wheat and not just uh, flaked wheat, but also white wheat too. So we use a our, our malted white wheat we really love, but not exclusively. We also love the flaked wheat and we also love flaked oats too. So We've tried, tried a bunch of different high protein malts, and that's kind of the three that we use in, in, in the range of 20 to 25% of the malt bill. We've gone higher and, and seen you know some really great results, but for a consistent mash bill for us, it's kind of that 25%, you know, almost evenly split between white wheat, flaked wheat, and flaked oats has kind of really produced the best results for us. Wow. I don't know, JC. I think Neil just gave you your next beer name. Instagram decisions is a pretty good beer. <laughs> name. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, brew for the gram. Just yeah, for the gram. <laughs> That's funny. But I, you, you touched on color and maybe both of you guys can let us know. I mean, is there a number for these hazy beers that you're trying not to exceed where it starts to look a little too dark? And, and is there such a thing as too light a hazy beer? It's like I talk at, with Evan down at Green Cheek and it's like he's using brewer's crystals and doing all sorts of things to even make it lighter and look like, you know, flour suspended in water sometimes. I mean, where's the sweet spot? I think we, we you know, we, we've, we've seen too light doesn't seem to be a, an issue very often, especially if you can maintain some haze and, and turbidity. It doesn't seem like you ever have too ill effect from too light. I think more for me, it's the flavor and the backbone. Some of that, you know, that base that you want to support all these hops gets a little bit overwhelmed if you don't have, you know, something behind it and it doesn't need to be something dark, not crystal or anything, but just something to still give you some, you know, some malt character behind that, but too dark, you know, we're, we're trying to keep ours in the four, four and under kind of SRM. Um, and, even five is fine. I think it just depends on, for us, a turbidity. Honestly, NTUs will really play into that. So if we're consistently hitting a much higher NTU than even a thousand, um, then we will want to lighten it up because those beers just become darker as you have more opacity. And so, you know, the if you're shooting for a thousand NTUs for tur turbidity, I, I would say that you wouldn't want to be over four if you're kind of more comfortable in the five to six hundred range for NTUs for for turbidity. I'd say you could get away with a little bit higher than that, but 
that's kind of the rule of thumb we've used. And, and it's almost, you know, by the time you get to those decisions, it's too late. The beer's already, <laughs> it is what it is. So it might be one that you encourage to drink out of the can, which I think is a brilliant philosophy from implored by a lot of uh, other people in that. So I, you know, we don't want to make beer for aesthetic purposes, but I think we all know that those do have, I mean, and we also see some outcomes in the actual, you know, the way the beer presents, not just aesthetically, but the way it drinks, there are some differences there too. So JC, is there a minimum amount of hop needed to obtain the, the, uh, what'd you call it? O- opalescence, the, 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 the opacity? That, uh... yeah, the opacity, sorry. <laughs> I think it was opalescence, actually. I like it better. I like that one a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> I think Neil s- summed it up perfectly. I mean, I think we shoot for really pale, pale beers for the, for the hazy IPA. Um, yeah, I think what he said is exactly we're, you know, in, in, in the same camp. And But, you know, I, I do think that, you know, traditionally, I mean, you look at beers like, you know, Treehouse, like the pioneers of the style, they're, you know, quite a bit darker and, um, you know, they're received very well, obviously. Um, I don't know. I, I, it's interesting right now. The, the craze seems to be on, on really pale and, you know, we'll see, you know, where that goes, obviously. Um, But Oh, how about the the question of minimum, you know, pounds per barrel, however you grant. Oh yeah, sure. to, To, to really impact that haze as you'd like to see it. I mean, obviously it's all about flavor and everything like that, but I'm always, trying to draw this line between this visual and then, you know, sure. hop impact you're looking for. Yeah. I think to get that, that nice stable haze, depending on your, you know, the, the varieties that you're using or your hops, um, you know, we're ju- usually like minimum four pounds per barrel, four to five pounds on our kind of single IPAs, pale ales. Uh, if it's like a hazy pale ale, which we don't do a lot of hazy pale ales, but you know, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, and then, you know, double IPA we're looking at, generally six to eight, uh, you know, over the last year, we got really into pushing the eight pounds per barrel between eight and nine mark, which, and we were using some cryo with that. And I counted cryo as like double the hop just for budgetary purposes, just so I didn't, you know, lose, lose money on the batch. But, uh, that was pretty cool. Um, the oil factor and just the resin and intensity, it, it, I really liked it at that, at that rate, but, uh, economically, it's a, it's a little more challenging. I, I'm, we're not going to shy away from that, but I might make those batch sizes a little bit smaller when we're getting that high. <laughs> <laughs> it's already expensive to make the beers you guys are making. It's it's you know for everybody. I'll, I'll, you know, and I, I I I think that consumers have an understanding of that because they're they're paying these these higher prices, right? But uh, yeah, it's a, I'm glad that you just bring that up, even in the sense that to give the consumer what they want is costing a lot of money. Also on the brewery end, you know, this is not a Budweiser problem. <laughs> you know, this is a, everybody's favorite local brewery problem. Like, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. And you're going to have to pay for that. <laughs> yeah, we have to brew a lot of other beers to you know, be able to make our hazy beers. You know, it's kind of like at a restaurant. It's like your your French fries and your your you know. Right. Them. You know, it's the yeah. that's not hazy IPA. That's for sure. <laughs> well, we've made it this far with only the word being mentioned once or twice. But the professional brewers who are listening to this podcast would hate me if I don't make us focus a little bit on biotransformation. And, and, and hopefully we don't, we don't have to dive into the, the entire world of that because we don't have enough time. But let me give you my layman's terms of what I think 
you mean by it. And then you guys can either correct me uh, and or move forward with with what you think is happening and, and how you get that. But my understanding, um, and I've just started to learn about this over the last couple of years, is, is actually that the fermentation process, uh, the yeast itself and how it's working with all of the ingredients, but especially hops, um, there are biotransformations that occur that uh, result in flavor change. Um, they result in uh, differences in fermentation. Um, they result in all kinds of uh, mostly beneficial things. I'm sure some of them you have to work on too. Um, am I on the right track here that that's a, a basic understanding of biotransformation, that compounds are being changed during the fermentation process? Good enough for the layman? I would agree okay. with that. I would agree. Okay. So manipulating this process has become kind of like a tool for you guys, right? Like some of your favorite ways that, that hazy beers are expressing themselves is when you're finding that biotransformation is happening. Is, is that about right? And, and so with that, just talk to me about it. Are you choosing hops based on what you've discovered gets biotransformed? Are you, are you manipulating your yeast based on what you've discovered it does to biotransform? Um, I'm very novice at this. So that's about the best I can do to guide us down that path. I'm going to take over and ask Matt a question about this. Okay. Um, Cause I think Matt, if I, I, for union Jack, I think in particular, I, I remember you talking about your guys' hop additions and schedule and it was pretty, uh, you know, obviously that's when was union Jack uh, brought to market? Oh my gosh. Like 2006. Okay. Yeah. That's, and, and I think that's, well, I think that's, I think at the time, not as even today, I think you guys had a very different approach to even those dry hop scheduling. So did you guys see based on, you know, all of it terminal, not terminal, were you guys already experimenting with that before any of us even were talking about biotransformation? I mean, there had been some talk and there wasn't as much, you know, scientific, um, you know, base on all of it. A lot of it was anecdotal, but there was some science behind it. I mean, yeah, we believe that we wanted to get some, you know, roughly half of the hops in during fermentation and the other half after to try to take advantage of, um, yeah, biotransformation. I also, in those days, was chasing down oxygen control. So the earlier those hops went in, um, the better off we were. And that became a little bit of a, a program on the West Coast side. Um, and, and, and that's carried forward on our hazy program as well. Um, not with every beer we produce, but um, I do like to get some hops in early. Um, and I'm really curious what you guys feel about that because, you know, there's pluses and, 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 and minuses. I mean, obviously you start dry hopping in the middle of fermentation, you can't harvest that yeast. So you're sacrificing, yeah, you know, that. Um, there could be other issues of, you know, too vigorous of fermentation. You end up scrubbing off a lot of the, the good stuff you're trying to get in there. Um, and my experience as well, which is always something I'm trying to figure out, and I don't know that I've necessarily cracked this nut, is sulfur control with London 3 and making sure that, you know, you're not promoting some of that mercaptan-like sulfur edgy stuff that can happen with that yeast. And I think it does have something to do with hops. So yeah, I'll turn it over to you from there. I mean, <laughs> well, I think that, I mean, that's what we were originally kind of going after was, was not necessarily bio, bio transformation for those early mid fermentation additions. It was more what you mentioned, the, the oxygen, you know, trying to really capitalize on a oxygen deprivant, you know, environment without 
with, without a, any sort of consideration for exactly how it was different from a buyer transformation perspective. So our very first batches of juicy bits, we were doing almost halfway through fermentation. We even trialed some stuff at knockout from the fermenter or from the um, whirlpool into the fermenter, adding some hops then, which, you know, there's still some fun experiments to do, but we found that we also, for any hops we added there, we lost all the aromatics because there's such, you know, so it's, it's diminished gains. Now we're obviously, you know, at 14 pounds per barrel, we're not always just concerned about efficiency, but it can't, we can't just throw caution to the wind and, and just start burning hops for no good reason. So we always want to find out what actually has proven and consistent results that actually improves the quality of the beer. So we've kind of shied away from our active fermentation additions for dry hopping and most of our, especially juicy bits, because I think for the benefits of potential, you know, lower oxygen, which we still get some because we're doing it towards the tail end of fermentation, not quite midway, but still, you know, still, still some active fermentation, but the earlier we were adding them, the more we volatize all those, those aromatics. And so it became a, you know, which, which scale are you tipping? And, you know, obviously, like you said, there's also some tangible, you can't harvest that yeast if you, you know, exceed a certain threshold. And, um, and so for a brewery that's now made our flagship out of, uh, you know, London L3 is now our house yeast. Those considerations are very real. It's not, it's not just every batch is, you know, this is the end of the line for the yeast. Some of those, we can't make those decisions, but we also did see that we were almost, I think, creating for whatever, you know, and I think biotransformation is something I'm super curious to see what we actually learn in the next five years. I think it's probably something we will be dedicating a lot more resources towards understanding. It feels a lot like hop creep um, as far as just these, almost industry moving revelations about the way that we did things. We saw anecdotally what the results were. We just don't know why. And I'm excited to get more of the why, but we started to see diminished returns on some of those, you know, early decisions on designing recipes and in, in New England IPAs. We are, are more committed now to closer to terminal because we maintain a little bit more of the aromatic quality, which is for us the hardest to, to really push. And even at, six, eight pounds per barrel, 10, if we're, you know, some of our doubles are pushing 10, obviously extra, extra is the only one that's beyond that, but even just juicy bits at, you know, around five pounds or more that one, we, you know, we did tons of trials, figuring out when to, to schedule dry hops, how long to extend them, what, you know, how we split the loads. And we've just kind of found that the, the less we, the less we kind of architect those schedules and the simpler we can do it with, um, with a little bit less, kind of volatile fermentation going on, the better we've, we've seen the results. So what we started as is really championing this mid fermentation addition, we've backed off entirely. So um, I think we still do those trials and, and a few one-offs will do that. Um, and it produces a different beer, but I can't say definitively it produces a better beer or something that actually, you know, supports the, you know, how much you lose in, in aromatics. How about you, JC? So we experimented, well, first of all, I'm sure you guys have both dry hopped a tank during fermentation. It's very dangerous and messy. And I've had twice, I've had a volcano on myself, uh, which is not, not fun at all. So we've always been like nervous to do that, but you know, this whole theory of biotransformation, we had to put it to the test. Um, and we found that that on our hazy beers, uh, in order to minimize hop creep and do that kind of 
you know, soft crash to our tank, which I was talking, I dodged your question earlier on that, Matt. Uh, we're not doing any biotransformation with our hazy beers right now. What we are doing with biotransformation is on our West Coast beers. Uh, we're seeing a lot of success with not on a partial to full dry hop load, uh, kind of debunking the myth, at least in, in my experience, my anecdotal experience, that you, you blow off a lot of that flavor during fermentation. Um, and that's where West Coast IPA right now is, is really fun for us because we're having, uh, you know, experimenting with different enzymes like the glucosidase enzyme that will um, sort of take a yeast that's not necessarily uh, naturally going to, uh, you know, biotransform, uh, you know, monoterpenes, it, it's, it's going to give that added enzymatic uh, push to, to get those uh, processes done and, and actually create some really fruity, interesting uh, aroma, you know, profiles. Um, but I mean, we don't dry hop the way we used to, so we're not getting showered uh, anymore. Uh, thank you for that, Matt, because we took your uh, hop cannon uh, idea, which uh, has been just awesome for us. Yeah, and that, that eliminates the oxygen concern, you know, back yeah. to that whole point. Um, it gives you a lot more flexibility in that regard. Definitely. And I think we actually, we actually noticed on a couple beers that we dry hopped early in the fermentation that it actually uh, would uh, bind to the yeast and, and would actually, like those beers were a lot more clear um, that we, uh, we noticed. And it actually kind of facilitates West coast IPA. It actually kind of works on, on brightening your beer without using any biofine or anything. We've, we've kind of noticed at least with, you know, just kind of like a neutral ale strain. Um, so I love hearing that you're experimenting with West coast IPA. It's like, you're yeah. new. <laughs> It's, it's a, it's the circle of life. I think that's it's totally full circle. hundred yeah. percent. That, that would be exa- I mean, like for our experimental, like playground, it would have, it would be West coast IPA because we're, we're now known for what we do with hazy IPA in new England. So if we want to do something totally different, it's gotta be West coast, which is it's just, yeah, it's the, it's the full circle. It's so exactly. Fun. I love hearing it too. So I don't drink all of the beers we get from you that, that come through here, JC, because I don't ride jet skis enough and stuff. Um, but I've only I been do- <laughs> once in my whole life for the record. Yeah. But I do try to drink every single West Coast that you send through here. Um, and yeah, you, you are killing it. I'm curious about one, even though this is, isn't, this is a hazy show. I really love, I think it's called Triple Cone, Green Can, Triple, triple Cone. cone. Oh. Yeah. I love it. And when people Thanks, are going man. through asking for West Coast, I always go, oh, you know, Alvarado doesn't just make hazy and fruity things. They make, you should try triple cone. Um, is that what, is that, is that beer an example of what you're talking about? Like where you're noted, you're, you're experimenting with things or has that one been around too long? Uh, that one's been around since we opened. That's like kind of our, um, you know, homage to Plenty the Younger. It's a, you know, triple okay. West Coast IPA, um, you know, beer that, is brewed kind of once a year. Um, this year I did, we did do, um, I believe like a three and a half pound per barrel knockout edition with, uh, employing with an, with an enzyme. And, and, uh, then we, you know, double dry hopped it on top of that and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's Got it. know, just been fun to, to try different things and yeah, yeah, yeah. To figure it all out. still. <laughs> Well, that's, that's why I still have a career. Cause you guys are still figuring shit out that I get to talk about. So uh, well, it's beers like union Jack. That is why we have careers. Honestly. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, right. you're like it was yesterday, you know? 100%. Yeah. Do you Amazing. mean union Jack that came out during the hop crisis? I think that's the beer you're talking about. 
I think it was right then that, that Matt had to go to it was our big and, fat middle finger to the hop crisis. There you go. Was it Simcoe, Amarillo, Centennial, Matt, and that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And oh, I think yeah. it was like all of two pounds per barrel originally. It was amazing. Still, <laughs> all of two pounds amazing. per barrel. Yeah. Do you even That's consider so that a dry hop or is that just like <laughs> yeah, that's... wow yeah they're like no what are you doing <laughs> all right well you know another topic that we could go on uh, forever but we're just about a time uh, out of time uh, unless matt there's anything uh, that you really wanted to squeeze in there uh, i you know i had a i had a whole nother page of questions but we'll have to pick it up some other time you know yeah we'll we'll do part two it's no problem Um, so, well, I, I did come away with a lot of, of info on, on hazy from you guys. And, but honestly, the, the overarching, uh, you know, thing that I think I got from this is that, uh, you know, hazy beer is not the lazy brewers beer, uh, which is something I think was that, uh, misnomer, you know, in the beginning, I almost feel like I have to make fun of JC a little less because he's doing really complex things over there making <laughs> easy beers. And I don't like that. I enjoy making fun of you. Keep uh, it up. Keep it up. But it sounds like it's a very, the nuances that you guys are discussing to get these beers to taste like they should, because we've all had a bad hazy beer and you might've even brewed your own bad hazy beer. So to really get to where you want it, like the, these nuances are so, it's a very difficult style. You guys have really put yourselves to the test, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, it's good on you. I don't know why I'm so lazy. I never would have done that, but good on you guys. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll get us out of here. Um, I did want to ask, I didn't, I couldn't see the can map, but what Alvarado street were you drinking? So it's uh, the DeLorean dust. Oh yeah. Okay. And I picked this up from the brewery. Um, it's amazing. It's insane. It's- this is a cryo beer though, right? There's some cryo in it, yeah. I think that one's around eight eight pounds per barrel with some uh, mosaic, mosaic cryo, and I think there's some Idaho 7, maybe some Idaho 7 cryo in there as well. I'm glad that was going to be one of my questions was going to be a, run, a rundown, and maybe you can just do it really quick, rundown of just like, you know, some of your top favorite hops for this style. Yeah. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, the New Zealand stuff, I mean, Matt, you mentioned that that beer you did at the, at the Propagator, Nelson Ruwaka, that's been like my favorite combo of 2020, 2021. I mean, those hot, I mean, I've always loved Nelson. Ruwaka is an insane hop. I, I'm absolutely yeah. loving that. Um, so shout out to, you know, the, the New Zealand hop growers down there. They're, they're doing a great job. Um, I really like, uh, well, I don't, we haven't really used it in a lot of hazy beers, but the, that uh, HBC 586 is pretty cool been digging that a lot what do you think neil we we really fell in love with uh lotus and sabro uh about Mm. two years ago those two in particular kind of we started incorporating them into a new brand that we uh it's called advanced fluid dynamics so juicy bits you know citron mosaic eldorado and those are hard to beat i mean it's a great great combo so we love that but it got to a point where we were relying on, on those, you know, two of those three or all three of those almost in every, like there was some iteration of that, that kind of flavor profile in everything we made. And so advanced fluid dynamics was this very intentional, especially Sabro kind of with this coconut, you know, almost, you know, these lack almost, I, I liken it more to like Oak lactones, these characteristics that you would not expect in, in hops. And it's not even just straight fruit. It's more, you know, this almost oily fatty kind of like, flavor that we don't get in other hop varietals and then with lotus it was this kind of 
you know, orange creamsicle character that we also had never seen before. So we started playing with those two together and we got this really fun combo that we grounded with Citra this year. We kind of revamped that recipe. So it's Citra Sabro Lotus. And, um, and that's been a really fun beer just to kind of riff on, especially with the New Zealand hops. Uh, we did Tahiki just recently, Motueka, and, and we've really enjoyed kind of using that as our, as a little bit of a playground, just, you know, we've, we've obviously gone through the gamut with juicy bits and all the, the different DDH varietals. And not that we're going to stop doing that, but at some point, I think everybody, even when you make, I think we're on batch, I think we're almost at batch 700 of juicy bits, which is crazy. Cause we're, we're just, wow. you know, never, never built it as a flagship brand, but you kind of get to that point where you're like, you know, it so well that it almost feels like even when you experiment within that, that, you know, profile, it doesn't feel different. Whereas advanced fluid dynamics definitely was kind of more of this. It's a different, it's kind of our next iteration of what we think hops are, are new for 2020, 2021. And so that's been a really fun one, but yeah, the New Zealand, I mean, you know, Motueka, Ruaka, um, there's been a lot of really fun ones and I'm, I'm really excited about some of the experimental varietals and even some of the new like Phantasm and some other kind of new products. It's, it's, it's a really fun time to be making IPA. I think for Mm. home brewers and pro brewers alike, there is, so much more research right now to, and like you mentioned, even enzymes, I think, you know, talking about kind of some next foray into unlocking more flavors than any of us have have really tried to yet. I think, I think it's just the beginning. I think we're going to see some really fun experimentation happen in the next, you know, five to 10 years as we start to understand more about, you know, improvements to hop technology and not, I mean, even I think the hop creep is all product of us just getting, you know, the hop industry is improving their processing. I think that's the only reason hop creep exists. Mm-hmm. It's not like those enzymes weren't, you know, prevalent before they were just not surviving the, the, the whole processing part of it. It was, but now, right. we're, you know, I think, I, th- I think that's the biggest factor is those enzymes are, you know, were basically during the kiln process and whatever else was, was happening during processing, they couldn't survive. And now we're just, you know, we're seeing from the entire industry, all the supply chain, their processing, pelletizing, all of that has gotten so much better that now we have this new problem of hop creep. Like, hey, here's right. an enzyme that, that we never thought, yeah, we never had issues with because the enzymes just died. And it's wow. what a fun time to be making beer when technology is so good. We introduces new problems for brewers that didn't exist, you know, even 15 years ago. So right. I'm, 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 I'm as excited about new products and new uses of hops as I am about new varietals because I think... I think we all get kind of, you know, there's so many fun new varietals, but what, you know, what is the same varietal process in different ways going to look like? And what is Citra in 2025 going to look like? What was it cryo? Is it, you know, is there phantasm or what are we looking at then? And yeah, and it, it does feel like the new front. It feels, it feels like there's nothing but kind of experimentation on the table. Just scratching the surface. Hang on. I got to make a note, uh, invite Neil back for hop creep show. <laughs> have you covered that i don't know if you caught that, that Matt, like but a, it'll be our halloween uh, edition yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly uh i have to ask about a hop you guys didn't mention i was a little surprised no one threw out uh, idaho seven that one seems to be like popular hoppy beer hop right now is that you guys you guys are using that a little bit right somewhere i absolutely Definitely. love idaho seven and um the other couple I were gonna, I was gonna throw out there, Cashmere and Azaka seem mm. to fit really well into hazy beer. Cashmere being a public cultivar, um, Azaka coming out of a different breeding program than the HBC stuff. So, 
Um, that one of the challenges when we got started in our hazy programs, everybody said, oh yeah, you got to use mosaic and citrus. So we tried as hard as we could to omit them from the recipe and try to find other hops to work in there. Um, you know, with some success, but <laughs> with you, mentioned, success. you know, the cool kid hops and, uh, and, you know, Strata is another one. I think if that wasn't mentioned is another fun hop that plays well. Definitely. Well, so. for sure. Yeah. yeah and the list goes on and on. Yeah, I, I think that I think it's fun to see beer like hops that you don't expect in hazy IPA, and then like we did some really fun Columbus um, hazy IPAs that we all just were totally perplexed at how we got those kinds of characteristics out of Columbus. But it was, you know, when you stop using them hot side and exclusively in dry hop, you get such a different expression. So that's always I, I love being surprised by even some like more, I guess, throwback or classic, you know, C's, the classic C's and seeing how they incorporate in some regard to hazy IPA. And, um, yeah, we, I think that's the best part of all this is like, there's not a right answer. Uh, yeah. It's, there's definitely some that we all know will, will do well, but it doesn't mean there's not other answers that could even do better. And, um, I think as a new, like for us as a new brewery, trying to, to carve our way into 2015 and 2016, with, you know, that wasn't the hop crisis, but there was definitely a lot. It was, you know, Citra was impossible for us to get in 2015 on contract to open. And so finding its spot was just, you know, at, at we were at the mercy of the spot market. And so it was like one day you might be able to brew an IPA with Citra and the other, you know, a month later, not. So that was when we designed Juicy Bits. Once we finally got the contract that was opened Citra back up to us. But El Dorado was really initially for us was a driver because we couldn't find anything else and it was almost by default and then we fell in love with it and for the last you know, two crop years it's our preferred hop of the three just with our selection it's been the home run and it's um I, maybe it's not the, a good a very well kept secret anymore but those those kinds of hops that you stumble upon either by you know either because of you know other external factors or just you fall in love with it from someone else's beer that's a lot of fun of you know that's half the fun of making these really unique ipas Yep. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, uh, for various reasons, I got to wrap up this podcast and, and invite you guys back to the next one. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but you can't see this if you're listening on this podcast, but a car has parked perfectly outside of my studio <laughs> where the sun is shining directly. It just moved into the spot and I'm just, you can see it flashing on my face and it's people walking. Very, it's out of the world. You've got a really nice glow about you. <laughs> I've been in the studio for seven years. This has never once happened. And just right now, I'm like, who is shining a spotlight in my face? I swear, officer, I haven't been drinking. Uh, <laughs> anyway, sorry, podcasters, that you don't get to see the joy. But go to our Facebook page. You can watch this video and you'll see what I'm maniacally talking about in my face. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, Neil and JC, um, Weldworks and Alvarado Street, respectively. Uh, you guys are badasses. You're making such great beer. And, um, you know, that you took the time with us today is just so much appreciated. I know that everyone's going to love to hear your, your input today. So, so thanks so much for sharing with us. Yeah. Thanks guys. Yeah. Thanks Justin. Thanks Matt. Appreciate it. And, really and keep up the good work, man. I'm pretty sure Alvarado Street pays my rent at least like a month out of the year, maybe more. Um, and, and Neil, you know, you anytime you want to send more of it my way too, um, <laughs> we're taking it. Hey, and I, yeah, I'll just throw out the rumor. I think maybe Greeley's looking for a hop grenade. So, I mean, I'll just throw it out there. 
<laughs> and I did tell you, I've got a restaurant in a box just sitting in Colorado. So I know, I know. Right? It's like 25 miles from from Greeley. So yeah, but awesome. thanks again for having me, guys. Yeah, you got it. All right, Matt. Well, thank you. Um, we've got more coming up. We've got uh, several topics in in the pipeline, and um, you know, we published the, the the podcast a little bit spread out. But just hang in there. You know, Matt and I both got uh, uh, too much, too many other things to do all the time. But we're getting better at this, and um, we do have a stellar lineup for you. So stay tuned. Um, you know, wherever your podcasts are downloaded. Uh, if you're watching this on Facebook, you can actually download the audio version too. Um, and we're just going to try to get more and more of these. As long as Matt will put up with me, I think we're doing these. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. Uh, we appreciate it very much. Thanks to Firestone Walker for their support. Thanks to uh, our guests and to Matt. And uh, take care of yourselves and your beer out there. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>